This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 23, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The bland uniformity of the typical public school is not the answer as we try to protect religious liberty. Families should have the ability to choose schools based on their deepest convictions. Charles Glenn is a professor of education leadership at Boston University. He spoke at Cato's Protecting Religious Liberty Conference held last week. The last time I spoke at a Cato event, I believe was 20 years ago in the uh, auditorium downstairs, to celebrate Cato's publication of my report on educational freedom in Eastern Europe. It was commissioned by the first Bush administration and then suppressed by the incoming Clinton administration. I had the pleasure of giving copies of that Cato book recently on my trips to Ukraine to advise on on reforming their educational system to promote freedom. I mention that study because of its two primary themes, how government can misuse popular schooling to seek to impose uniformity and obedience, and the way in which many families, when given a chance, will seek to create or choose schools for their children, reflecting their deepest convictions. My report documented how such initiatives were a primary expression of new freedoms as communist regimes fell. This made it unwelcome to the American education establishment and its allies. The present conference has been called because of a widespread perception that religious liberty is under threat in the United States, and perhaps most crucially, in education. There are four aspects of religious liberty essential to this discussion. First, religious liberty protects what is precious to human beings at the most fundamental level. More than identities based on race, ethnicity, gender, or political views, religious convictions go all the way down, shaping how the believer understands the world and the requirements of a flourishing life, what is worth living for and perhaps what is worth dying for. A wise polity protects educational religious liberty, not only to respect the convictions of citizens, but for the sake of domestic tranquility. Second, meaningful religious liberty is not, in most cases, a private individualistic affair. With rare exceptions, religious convictions are acquired and supported communally and expressed in communal acts of worship, fellowship, and service. Religious liberty protects the right of voluntary associations to organize and define themselves. The post-war development of international norms for freedom in a variety of spheres of life owes much to the concept of personalism, which emphasizes the dignity of the human person in relation to other persons. Religious liberty must recognize the social dimension of human beings, not as solitary individuals, but in conjunction with other human beings. Third, the right to seek, on, the right to, seek to pass on one's religious conviction, especially to children, is a fundamental aspect of religious liberty. Jack Coons remind us that the right to form families and to determine the scope of their children's practical liberty is for most men and women the primary occasion for choice and responsibility. One does not have to be rich or well-placed to experience the family. 
The opportunity over a span of 15 or 20 years to attempt the transmission of one's deepest values to a beloved child provides a unique arena for the creative impulse. Here is the communication of ideas in their most elemental form. Parental expression, Coons concludes, is an activity with profound First Amendment implications. And finally, flourishing religious liberty is a guardian for other freedoms. Because as Peter Berger has written, it posits the ultimate limit on the power of the state. The status of religious liberty in a society is a very good measure of the general condition of rights and liberties in that society. This is because religion relativizes, puts in their proper place, all the realities of the world, including all institutions. The state that guarantees religious liberty does more than acknowledge yet another human right. It acknowledges, perhaps without knowing it, that the state's own power is less than ultimate. Much then is at stake in how the religious freedom rights of individuals, of faith-based religious associations, and of parents are protected. After decades as a state government official, and by the way, one who sent all seven of my own children to the Boston public schools, and more decades since then as an educational policy consultant in many countries, I've become convinced that the only way that these rights can be protected in the educational system is through structural pluralism, through encouraging a rich variety of schools with distinctive educational missions. Americans differ too widely in their faith-based convictions about the nature of a worthy human life and about the possibility of authoritative moral standards to achieve a satisfactory lowest common denominator education. As Jonathan Zimmerman has shown in, in fascinating detail, no simple compromise could solve the problem of sex education, which touched upon the deepest religious and philosophical rifts. But the issue is not simply about how to deal with questions of sexuality or with enriching the history and social studies curriculum to reflect religious as well as ethnic and gender diversity. The importance of structural pluralism in education is not as a way to avoid such issues, but rather as the only way in a diverse society to provide each child with a coherent educational setting based on a shared worldview that the child's parents can support wholeheartedly. Simply removing offensive elements of the curriculum is not enough to satisfy parents with strong convictions about the education of their children. When public schools in the 19th century removed anti-Catholic textbooks, that did not prevent the creation of distinctively Catholic schools. More recently, the prohibition of teacher-led prayer in public schools was only a symbolic rallying point uh, reflecting a much deeper uh, unease with developments in the wider culture that led to the development of thousands of evangelical schools. And the, uh, the lack of anti-Semitic slurs in the curriculum has not prevented 
the formation in recent years of hundreds and hundreds of new Jewish day schools. There are many who deplore, who have always deplored such alternatives, as I showed in the myth of the common school a quarter century ago. They charge that children can learn to be good Americans only through attending public schools, segregated as these are by race and class. Such warnings persist despite massive research evidence to the contrary. My own research team has been interviewing in Islamic high schools across the United States for the past several years. We found that parents and students alike are looking for something that they have not found in local public schools. They're not avoiding the schools because of anti-Islamic elements in the schools. They're looking for something else. Youth told us again and again that they appreciate the freedom to have frank discussions on the basis of shared conviction in a way they had not, not found possible in the public schools they previously attended. I found it plausible that faith-based schools can provide a better standpoint in many cases for critical engagement with the dominant culture than can a public school with its tolerance of almost everything and parallel belief in almost nothing, swamped by that culture. To sum up, individual religious freedom is essential, but it, it needs to be sustained by the freedom of voluntary associations, by communities of common purpose with a shared understanding of the nature of a flourishing human life. This is particularly true in education. It is schools with a distinctive character that best form the character of their students. The freedom to choose a school for one's child is meaningless if all schools are forced into a bland uniformity. Such bland uniformity, based on what I call defensive teaching, is the typical response of American public schools to the objections of parents. I'm not for a moment suggesting that recent efforts which I'm sure we'll be hearing more about, to present the historical and sociological role of religion fairly and objectively in public schools are unimportant. They are required by intellectual honesty and fairness. But we need to be clear that such curriculum enrichments will not satisfy the demands of those parents, and there are millions of them, who want a school for their children permeated through and through by distinctive worldview an understanding of the nature and requirements of a flourishing human life. Oddly enough, for a country so fond of invoking freedom and with an economy based on choice, the United States is a laggard among Western democracies in government support for such choices. In a dozen European countries, in Canada, in Australia, public policies provide public funding for parent choice of faith-based schools in a way that only here and there is beginning to happen in the United States. Respect for religious liberty requires that structural pluralism become the norm in education. Charles Glenn is a professor of educational leadership at Boston University. He spoke at Cato's Protecting Religious Liberty Conference held last week. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.